Good morning. It's good to see everybody. Everybody said good morning to Eve. I know we're being really repetitive, but because it's really important, I would just like to double down real quickly before I jump into the message, and please request and ask that everybody stick around for town hall, even if you uh, aren't, haven't gone through formal, formal membership procedure, and uh, which is what would allow you to participate in our vote. Um, please stick around uh, if you are a committed unofficial or official member here, and if you care about our ministry. And if you're new, too, this is a really awesome opportunity to see what we care about and who we are as a church. Um, yeah, but if you are new, my name is Danny. I'm one of the three pastors here. And uh, if you are new and would like to meet one of us, please come and find me after service. Uh, I'd love to talk about our church more. We can get to know each other. Um, and uh, we'll, I'll be here after for town hall as well. So please come grab me uh, if you would like somebody to connect with. But uh, let me pray uh, one more time in submitting ourselves under God before his word um, before we jump into the message for this morning. Heavenly Father, this, this, at this moment, at this time, um, in this service, uh, we want to ask for humility. Humility in uh, reverence before the Almighty God. Humility in submission before your word and for your desires for this whole world, for your creation, and for even each and every one of us as individuals. And in humility with how we do fellowship and community with one another. We also want to pray that our mindset and our hearts now and forever would reflect what we sang um, just 10 minutes ago, that you are the only one worthy of our praise and that you would be exalted higher above everything in this world and in our lives. So whether it be giving our offerings or hearing your good news and testimonies and confirmation or even in sticking around for a town hall and hearing about the nuts and bolts of a church organization, or listening to a message and wrestling with your word. We pray that all these things would just be a large uh, collective whole in us placing you in the highest place, rejoicing over you as the one seated on the throne, committing our lives to worshiping you and you alone. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. So a couple months ago, as I know that everybody in the house knows, uh, the long-awaited Avengers Endgame fil- film came out in theaters, and it marked the end of the first three phases of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or the MCU. And after the buzz of the movie faded, and I don't know, it might still be out in theaters now, uh, a lot of fans, for fun, sparked up a debate on which movie is the most important one to watch out of all the ones that have been created so far. So... Come up with your answer and tell your neighbor, of all the movies that have come up so far, what's the most important one? Go ahead. All right, don't talk more. Just answer the question, and then we'll come back. So everyone knows the right answer, right? Ant-Man. No, just kidding. Iron Man, probably, right? (laughs) I've noticed that with these types of debates, friends like, you know, kind of wrestling and debating with each other with this kind of topic pretty frequently. Like, what would be the best 
in this situation? What's the best movie to watch out of all of these ones? One thing that I hear a lot, or a good example might be, if you're traveling to New York City and you can only eat one meal out of all the fantastic restaurants in New York City, what would it be? If you travel to Europe and could only go to one country, what would it be? One of the questions that I've oddly, well, maybe not oddly, that I've uncomfortably received many times from all of you is, Pastor Danny, if you could only go to one Boston sports event for the rest of your life, what would it be? And my answer is always the same. I hate you. Go away. Don't ever ask me that again. See, we like these types of debates because we find it important and maybe even fun to assess the value of things and rank order of importance. You can't eat everything in New York City, so if you only had one shot, what would be at the top of your list so that you could experience it? You certainly don't have unlimited vacation for the rest of your life, so if you could only travel in a limited amount, what countries in the world or what, what sites would you want to see? We want to experience the best we can in this life if we can't experience everything, if we can't see or taste or uh, watch everything in this world. Similarly, as a pastor, a very common question I receive, and I'm sure that the other ones do as well, is, Pastor Danny, if there's only one book of the Bible that I could master and study really in and out, and it's just super important to read, what would it be? There's 66 of them. This Bible, this book is really, really long. Like, this is very small print. There's a lot to read. There's a lot to learn. And I feel like there's only one lifetime, and it's short of all of them. Which one should I study the most? If there were a book at the top of the list to read to fully understand God's relationship to his children, to humanity, to his creation, and that most fully explains the gospel of Jesus Christ, what would it be? And I think the quick and immediate answer is this. It's the book of Romans. So I'm very excited to kick off, kick off our new summer sermon series through this book of Romans. So we're starting today, the first Sunday of June, and we're going to go on this long journey all the way to the last Sunday in August before our new ministry year begins in September in studying the book of Romans in a deep dive. And so, of course, what I'm not saying is that the other books of the Bible are unimportant. All of them are unique. All of them have special value. All of them are placed in the canon on purpose. But of all the books Compared to all of them side by side, this is the prized text that most fully teaches us about who God is, who we are as his creation, and most thoroughly teaches what God did through his son Jesus Christ in the gospel. So since I'm starting off the week, I just or the, the series rather, I want to do a quick, really fast overview of the book of Romans. So Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. A lot of the New Testament is written by Paul. And as its name states, it's addressed to the Christians in the church of Rome. So Paul is penning a long letter to the church in Rome. And the church in Rome is made up of Christians, both Jewish and Gentile, or Gentile meaning non-Jews. So they're all together. And at the time of his writing to their ministry in Rome, he finds that the church is in discord and disunity. They are fighting, they are split, they are constantly arguing, they are at odds with each other. And this type of seed of discord has infiltrated their church and has taken a very severe root. So in Paul's mind, he's writing to them, and unity will happen when we look to God and when God's wisdom takes its place as the authority, not the wisdom of mankind. So let's imagine if that were happening at Cornerstone and if I were writing to you guys to get unified. Like this side of the auditorium's all like, it's Iron Man. And all of you guys are like, you idiots, it's Captain America. 
and you're fighting, like, I hate you. Like, I never want to be in a small group with you ever again, you Iron Man fan. And God shows up, and he's like, you're all wrong, it's Ant-Man. At the end of the day, all of us are like, are you sure, God? You know? But he's God. We just have to submit ourselves and be like, well, I guess I misunderstood. And that's kind of a, probably, I mean, I hope it's not inappropriate. Bad example, but the point you get it is that they're saying, no, this is right. No, this is right. And Paul's saying, listen, we're not about following the opinions or the convictions of man. The church, we seek to know the will and the word of God. and We are going to commit ourselves to it. So he dives so deeply into this rich theological book and letter that we absolutely give thanks to God for as he pours out all of his Holy Spirit-inspired wisdom into these pages. And it's touted by scholars as the Apostle Paul's most important work that he ever wrote. See, a lot of artists we know have you know, that one piece that put them on the map or that they are known for, right? Like Leonardo da Vinci, you think of him and you think of the Mona Lisa. Or Andy Warhol, you think of the Campbell soup cans. Or if I say J.K. Rowling, you're all like Harry Potter. Like what put them on the map or what they're most known for? For the Apostle Paul, out of all the New Testament books, it is Romans. This is what a number of authors and theologians say about this book. Romans is the fullest explanation of the gospel about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Romans is the longest and most theological significant out of all the letters of Paul. And Martin Luther himself says this, one of the reformers. He says, Romans is the very purest gospel. So in his letter, in this full deep dive, in this theological treatment of what Jesus did on the cross and what that means for us as humans, Paul follows this really natural progression that's easy to follow, easy to divide up into three sections. The first section, he starts off with sin. What has happened to mankind? Who are we? How do we relate to God? And when sin entered the world, what happened to all of us? Then he goes into the middle section, the second of the, third, of, the, of the three, and he expands on the gospel of Jesus in some of the most beautiful language ever, especially in chapters 6, 7, and 8. You will find the, if you want to know what Jesus did on the cross, it is there. And at the end, natural progression, we find out what sin did, what did Jesus do, and now, how are we to live as a church? And so that's how we, we broke it up in the subtitle up there. It starts with our mess, God's rich and great mercy for us and, and just renewing everything, and now our mission, how are we to live? And that's exactly how we're going to divide up our weeks in preaching from now until the end of August. So today, I'm going to start at the very beginning. What has sin done to humanity? This is vital for us to start with because without a full understanding of what sin did to mankind, we'll never fully understand nor appreciate what Jesus did on the cross. We can sing all these songs about amazing grace, how sweet the sound, you saved a wretch like me. But if we don't really understand what sin has and can do to us, then the goodness of it we will never fully taste. Without fully understanding the depths of sin, we'll never understand the depths of God's love for his children. So we're going to start there with sin, Romans 1. So if you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Romans 1. Um, We're going to start at verse 18. If you'd prefer reading up on the screen with me, uh, you can read up on the screen. So Romans chapter 1, starting from verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
But what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the beginning of the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust, in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with lust for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So to begin his teaching to the Roman church, Paul naturally starts with the sin problem, but he doesn't start with the effects of sin. And that's where you and I usually jump in when we talk about sin. We say, don't be greedy because then poor people will lose out. Don't be selfish because then you'll hurt your family and friends. And we talk about the outward effects, which isn't wrong, but Paul starts at the very beginning. He starts with what sin is doing or has done to the human heart. He sets the groundwork and he starts at the most appropriate place. And this is going to be the major point of the sermon. And the rest of it, all is going to be fleshing it out, is what has sin done to the human heart? And it is this, that it has darkened our hearts. Sin darkens the heart. And firstly, sin has darkened our hearts, which makes us suppress and distort truth. So you'll notice, remember, this is just the beginning of his letter that he's writing to a divided and discord-ridden church. And again, what he doesn't do is, hey guys, we have a sin problem. You're disrespecting you. You're fighting with them. You're arguing with each other. And he doesn't talk about the outward effects. He starts beneath that. What is happening to your hearts right now? He says, hey guys, we have a sin problem. All of your hearts are being darkened right now. It's making you suppress and distort God's truth. He says this throughout the beginning of his letter. Look at these verses that I've I've just pulled out. In verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, not argue with each other, not see discord, he starts at the heart, suppress the truth. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. In their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Verse 25, they exchanged truth about God for a lie. So he, he's 
uncovering it all. He's reminding the church that the root of our sin, the root of our rebellion against God, is the failure to embrace and live by God's truth. Because what sin does first isn't just causing you to fight with one another or causing you to lust after somebody or causing you to be envious. Sin takes God's wisdom and truth and deforms it. All the sins that we read later in the passage that we'll get to again are a result of suppressed and distorted knowledge about God. It makes humans foolish. It makes us prefer lies instead of truth. And when sin takes that root inside of us, it warps our truth and our understanding. It darkens our hearts. And that is what leads us to darkened behavior. This world becomes led by people following a dark heart instead of people following the perfect will of God. One commentator says this about this passage. He says, by itself, human reason can no more be guaranteed to tell us which way to go than a compass in a room full of strong magnets. About five years ago, uh, there's an NFL star by the name of Ray Rice that made big headlines and news. And if you're not a fan or you don't care about football, Ray Rice is a, was a star player in the NFL. Everyone knew him. He was like one of the best players in the league, one of the best at his position. Uh, high paid, high profile, many people wearing his jerseys, and he played for the Baltimore Ravens. And he came out on the news because there was an altercation that, was, that got filmed by surveillance cameras. So he and his fiance were in an elevator in a casino in New Jersey, and the surveillance camera uh, shot them getting into an altercation, arguing. And his fiance starts like pushing him, and we can't hear anything, but she's yelling at him. And Ray Rice swings and punches her in the head, and like a rag doll, she gets knocked unconscious and immediately goes limp to the point where her head hits the side of the elevator and smacks on the ground. So he ends up picking her up because the elevator's door open, and as he's dragging her out of the elevator, it looks like she's dead. Like she is legit unconscious. Her her Arms are just hanging as he drags a lifeless body out of the elevator. And so, of course, the NFL needed to intervene. You know, they started an investigation. All the stuff came out of the news about what a suspension would look like, what his penalty and fines would look like, what the, what the, uh, the outside of the NFL, what the law would do to intervene. And so I remember just following the story as a, as a fan of football. And unfortunately, this isn't a rare thing um, in professional sports. But the reason why I bring out this story is because the, the stories that followed it just have just been so etched and burned in my mind that I can never forget the clips of the news that I saw. Primarily, the next Sunday that there was a home game in Baltimore, uh, a bunch of news uh, you know, stations showed up, of course, obviously. And what was so shocking was the thousands of people that showed up in Ray Rice jerseys. And so the news, you know, would go and interview, like, oh, excuse me, sir, excuse me, ma'am, like, why are you wearing a Raider Ice jersey? Like, how do you feel about what's happened? And tell us, like, your experience about the thing. And time after time, interview after interview, there are people who are just completely excusing what he did and praising him. Even women. One woman gets interviewed, and um, <laughs> this is five years ago. I, I cannot get it out of my brain as she looks the interviewer in the face with her Ray Rice jersey on, saying, well, she probably deserved it. It's at these types of moments 
where I think we can now understand that Paul is 100% correct. Sin is not just human misconduct. Sin starts at a warping, distorted version of life and truth. Sin is not just mistakes made by human beings in a vacuum. Sin is the twisting of reality and what is made, what God created to be right in this world. What in this whole world would lead people to celebrate somebody doing something like that? The answer is a darkened heart. That's what leads a woman to wear a jersey of a horrific domestic abuser and say, the woman deserved it. He shouldn't be suspended. Let him play. Darkened hearts do that to people. So after explaining that a darkened heart is the root of all the actions of sin, Paul then identifies a bunch of the results of the darkened heart. And he says this, and we'll reread these verses. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And let me pause there. I'm not doing a lot of nitty-gritty uh, exegesis here, but just in case anybody misunderstands, this isn't saying that God forced them or made them sin. God and sin are on opposite. Like, if you look it up in the dictionary, they are opposite. They have nothing to do with each other. God never coerces or has anything to do with sin. What this, it's just clunky English that's hard to translate from the language. He's saying he allowed them to just continue in what they themselves decided to do. God allowed them in that sense. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with lust for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give, a, give approval to those who practice them. So Paul lists out a bunch of sins that are happening in the church. And the point of this is not for him to be exhaustive. He's not like, okay, what is every single sin? Because he obviously left a bunch of them out. His point is to say darkened hearts lead to darkened conduct. When sin suppresses truth, it, lives, it leads people to live against God's will. And I don't know about you, but I know a lot of us start focusing on like, ooh, like which one am I? And by the way, it's all of us, every single one of us, even if you don't identify with being a gossip or slander or whatever, all of us are guilty. The most sobering verse is at the very end of this. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Sin has darkened our hearts, which makes us approve of and support darkness too. When sin darkens the heart and pushes out the will of God, it can make us even approve and champion darkness. And the sober truth, again, is that all of us, first of all, are guilty. But then what all of us have to humble ourselves and realize is that every single one of us in this room, including me, can believe something, encourage something, support something, 
approve of something, we could be exactly and completely wrong. Without God's word being our light, being the light unto our feet, every single one of us could champion something and be 100% wrong about it. So why does this matter? Why does this matter to us today? Because you guys know, and maybe you won't come back until July when we get to the good stuff. Pastor Danny, you can pound in the sin stuff all you want in Romans 1 through 4 to 5, especially chapter 1 and 3. But we're going to get to the good stuff with 6, 7, and 8 when we realize that Jesus made all things right. And that's very true. So why does this still matter to us? I'm going to address the seekers and the believers separately because I think it matters to us differently. If you're a seeker, meaning someone who is not a Christian, maybe you're exploring, and the reason why your butt is in the seat that you're in is because you're figuring things out and you're on a faith journey and trying to see whether Christianity is for you. This matters to you greatly because you're in the process of searching for what is true, right? Ultimately, you want to know what is the true religion, what is the true faith. And what happens is a lot of people on your journey, the starting point becomes sifting through the different religious beliefs and philosophies and making your decision based upon what sounds the most right to you or what you can vibe with. What feels like, yeah, you know what, that is ultimately what is most palatable to me or what I want to be true. We measure up our choice based upon whether it clicks or not. And I want to humbly ask you not to start there. Because any darkened human heart can lead people and convince them about something that could be wrong. Don't start with whether what you want to accept, what sounds the best to you. Start with who Jesus is. Because we have two options. He is God Almighty. Or he is a raving lunatic fraud. If he is God Almighty, then I want to say this sensitively, and this actually impacts Christians too, this is all of us, it doesn't really matter what your opinions are. If he's God and he says Ant-Man is the movie, then you can say Iron Man all you want and you're going to lose the arguments. It's not about whether we can swallow his truth and especially the ones that, are, like, that we cannot get ourselves to vibe with. It's not about how we feel about his teachings. It's rather how we conform our lives to his teachings and then find that it's there where we find true joy in life once he helps us to understand. If he really is God, and in all the words of Scripture are true, then we can find that even in the things that we will never fully be able to understand, and maybe we'll wrestle with God over this for the rest of our lives, but if we will believe that he truly is pure, loving, and righteous, and we can take that leap of faith in trusting him. If he is a fraud, then why are you here? It's pointless, and all of us are fools. So don't start with whether, oh, Christians say this, I like this part of their faith, but this part, ah, I don't know. Maybe I'll go to a few more services to see if I can vibe with that. Start with whether you think Jesus is God or not. If he is, then that's why we talk and sing about we surrender everything. And if he isn't, then there's no purpose in pursuing this. For those of us who are professing Christians, you say that you are a follower of Jesus and you're pursuing him with all of your life. Why does Romans 1 matter to you when you know you are eternally saved? 
Pastor Danny, let's get to the good part. Because you, I already know. I already stood in front of people and said, I am a sinner, but God saved me. You don't have to tell me more that I have the ability to have a darkened heart. Like, it's, we're good with that. I just, just tell me how I should live my life now. Why does Romans 1 matter to you? Well, because you're right. Eternally, you are a sinner saved by grace. You have to fear God's judgment like zero. You have nothing to fear. Sin has been defeated by the cross. You have, it has absolutely no eternal power over you. You are a beloved son and daughter of God, and nothing could ever change that, including your conduct. But what all of us as Christians must understand is that while sin has no eternal power over us, it still has present realities over us, and it still can and does distort our worldview and our conduct. We still must battle sin and humbly realize that we can also have darkened minds and suppressed truths that we can live by. This matters to us because we need to humble ourselves before God and confess that we can also choose lies over his word. We need to humble ourselves because of Romans 1 and ask prayerfully, Jesus, shine your light of wisdom into my heart and push out all areas of darkness. If we are proud and do not pray that prayer, that is when a terrible things happen. All of us know that this is true because we can just think of American history and think of slavery at the hands of Christians. What if back then they were praying, God, push out the darkness within us instead of saying, we're the ones saved by grace, we're good. We can still do really terrible things if we are not humbling ourselves before his word and desperately asking him to be our light. And this is what our, the pastors, what we're praying for is the biggest result of Romans. Each sermon is going to have their own application points and whatnot, but the grand scheme, at the end of the summer, we want us all to have a deeper, renewed commitment to God's word, and that being our only rule for life and for faith. Would you just commit this with me, that we would love God's word and live by it and not let any other thing compromise that? That's why Romans is in the Bible. That's why we're going to talk about it. That's why we're going to wrestle with it. That's why if you're a part of a CG, you're going to talk about it and wrestle with it with your own heart and in your community together in love. Are we following God's will and his heart and his word with everything that we are? Many years ago, well, not that long ago, when I first got hired as a pastor here at Cornerstone, it was like this big mixture for me. On one side, there was so much excitement, you know, that, that the leadership team and the pastors at the time would entrust somebody like me to be approved to a position to guide and shepherd God's beloved children. And the other side of me was like, oh, man, like, it, it kind of put a good, a healthy fire under my butt. Like, if, they're, if, if you're going to honor Cornerstone's trust in you, then... You should be working on yourself and growing and pushing hard and educating yourself and et cetera, working on your weaknesses. And so it was a really awesome renewal time for my soul and, and for my entrance into professional ministry. So I started thinking about where are my weaknesses and holes and what can I do to work on those? Who am I reading? And am I reading enough? Am I learning from mentors, both real people who are alive and those who've passed away that I can learn from in books? Am I receiving enough feedback from others and hearing about ways that I can grow and do better? And so during this season for me, that was really, really good. One of the weaknesses that I realized uh, that, you know, it wasn't like the end of the world, oh, I'm disqualified for ministry, but it was like, okay, this is a good idea for me to work on, was 
my knowledge, my understanding, and my participation in things like civil life and civic duty, knowing or being aware and up-to-date with local and national uh, politics and world events, and, and even watching the news. Like, I just wasn't watching the news. I didn't have anything. I, I wasn't doing enough. Like, things of this nature. And so I thought in my head, the reason why, I, I, you know, again, it's not the end of the world, but the reason why I consider maybe this might be a weakness is because I wanted to shepherd every person at Cornerstone holistically. Not just in like, hey, these are the praise songs we sing, or like, this is our Bible study, but in your life, if any one of you were to come up to me and say, Pastor Danny, like, how should I feel about this war that's happening in this country? How should we pray about it? And I said, what war? You know, like, you know, that's kind of a grand failure, but like, I should be able to shepherd you. Or if you say, hey, Pastor Danny, like, uh, I don't know, like, how should I feel about this political debate as a Christian? What does God's word say about it? What, what uh, biblical text would you point me to? And I'm like, what political debate? I don't watch the news. I just watch The Office. You know, like, you know, that wouldn't be great, right? So you get the point. I wasn't setting out to be like an expert. I'm going to be interviewed on CNBC. But I wanted to just work on my weaknesses. So fast forward to years later, years later, which is two months ago. I've been working on myself and doing all these things, and I have actually made real change and growth in this area. And the Mueller report came out two months ago. It's just been released to the public. And if you're not aware of what that is, the Mueller report was a report written by, or written by Robert Mueller, who was the investigator, and he, it's his findings on whether or not there was Russian interference in the election that Donald Trump won. That was the main thing. And then the secondary thing of what his investigation was supposed to reveal was whether there was any obstruction of justice by uh, President Trump and by his campaign team. And one of my things that I've started to do back then, and I still do now, is when I'm in my drives, I try to listen to NPR as much as possible. And so I was hearing about it, listening about it all day, you know, going in and out of my car here and there, and just hearing about the Mueller report. And that evening, Lindsay and I are, like, getting ready for bed, and I forget whether it was me or her. They, oh, did you hear that the Mueller report came out? And we were chatting about it. And she brought something up to me that I realized, like, wait, what? I forget what exactly she said, but I was like, wait, that didn't happen. She's like, yeah, it did. I'm like, oh. And then, so I, I went to my office, I went to my computer, and I was like, oh, gosh, like, I guess because I was going in and out of my car that I missed, like, important parts, and, and I thought that I knew enough. And maybe it's a little extreme of me, but I started to get, I was like, oh, no, and I kind of started to spiral. I was like, I'm just like everybody else. Like, I just see one tweet, and I'm like, oh, I'm an expert about this, you know? Like, and I, and I hate that about our current, current political state, and sorry if I offend you, but you're not an expert if you read a tweet. And likewise, I was not an expert just because I listened to like on and off radio programming, but I felt that way. And, and, and I realized, oh man. And so I'm like, oh, like what if, what if it was an unji? Like what if a cornerstone person was like, hey, Pastor Daniel, what do you think about the Mueller report? I'm like, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, you're wrong. I'm like, dang it, I'm the worst, you know? And so I didn't want that. So I'm panicking and I'm sitting, not panicking, but I'm at my computer and like I should be going to bed, but I start reading more. I'm like, I need to know this stuff. I need to shepherd people. I need to have the answers. I need to be able to at least help people think biblically. And at that moment, I had this Holy Spirit moment that I want to share with you all. And it was as loud as like a megaphone, like in my face, from God's voice. Like, I'll never, ever forget this. I remember God saying to me, Danny, Cornerstone doesn't need a more politically savvy pastor. They need a biblically saturated one. It was as if he was shouting at my, in my face 
while like the screen, like ironically, like the blog was shouting at my, like just, you know, like in big fonts before me. This isn't to say that it's unimportant or that my goals are wrong or that I'm going to change anything about it. But what was driving me so much is having all this grand wisdom. But what I really need is the word of God, not expertise on the news. And I share this as my commitment to you. I promise this to you. But I also share this as a challenge to you. Are you more concerned with current events or having a strong opinion in all the rallies that are going on and knowing what to like or not like on your Instagram or your Twitter? Or are you hungry to know more of this? What is your greatest concern right now? I loved, I, I, I'm gonna, I'd like to ask to, for everyone to participate with me in a simple exercise. I'm just gonna say a, a, a top, like a, something that comes up on the news or a hot button issue. And I'm not gonna uncover it. I'm not gonna point out that we don't have the time for that. I'm not gonna talk about this is what I think the Bible says or cornerstone stance. None of that. None of that. This isn't to rile up any emotions. I just want you to think about your own opinion about it in your head. So I'm gonna say a topic. You think, oh, I think this about it. Or maybe you don't think anything, and that's fine. You're like, oh, like, I haven't made up my mind yet. That's fine. You just keep it to yourself, and then I'll move on. The legalization of recreational marijuana. Just think about what your opinion is, if you have one. Abortion. Gender identity. Climate change. Gun control. Immigration, the dreamers, the border wall between Mexico and the U.S., Black Lives Matter, gay marriage. With all of your opinions in your head on these topics, how many of those opinions and convictions are in you right now because of careful and rigorous study of Scripture? And how many of them are from something else? whether it be your personal feelings and life experience, whether it be the journalists or the blogs that you follow, that you trust, the media and Instagrams, Twitter, Facebook, cultural norms. What is shaping your life view and your convictions more right now? See, I hope and pray that the majority of us would all easily say, Most, if not all of them, Pastor Danny, are formulated by my study of God's word, but I know that the sobering reality is that's just not true. Right now, we are in a hyper-post-Christian culture, and maybe I should say further, antagonistic towards Christian culture, and at the same time, the perfect storm is that we are in a hypersensitive political state. And what that's done to everybody is we all have a strong opinion about everything. We've all decided to take a side. Everyone is emotionally amped and conversations are testy and sensitive. And what makes me worry and wonder and what I realize I need to pray more for is it makes me wonder, are we less informed by Jesus, the Apostle Paul, Peter, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, Abraham, Moses? And are we more informed by Fox, CNN, NBC, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Stephen Colbert, Trevor Noah, BuzzFeed? Who is shaping you more right now? Is it the the news channel of the political party of your choice? 
What is shaping you? Let me just do a visual. Which one? This or this? God's word or everything else on your phone? You see, Romans 1 matters to every single one of us in this critical way because it is a call for us to realign ourselves with the wisdom of Yahweh, the creator God. So let us put down the blogs and the YouTube channels and Instagram handles and first pick up your Bible. And I hate that I have to say this because I hate that I always have to preface everything in sermons because it's always filled in like, oh, Pastor Danny said Trevor Noah is the Antichrist. No, listen, still do that stuff. You can be blue or red if you want to. It's fine. You can watch this channel or this channel if you want to. You can listen to this person or this person. That's not wrong. In fact, I started doing that more, so I'm not discouraging it. But I am discouraging if that is where you get most of your food for your soul and your worldview, then the word of God. Then I absolutely am saying put those things down. Because it's all from humans. It's all from potential darkness. And I'm not saying they're always wrong. Of course I'm not. But what we need is the word of God in an unwavering studying and living by his wisdom. And this is what we're setting out to do in this series. As the pastors, we promise that as long as we're the ones to have influence over this church, and as long as you're a part of it, we promise this. We promise to be careful students of the Bible. We promise to be humble in our studying of it. We promise to hold each other accountable and to never preach the wisdom of man, but to preach only the wisdom of God by his Holy Spirit's helping us. We promise to do so desperately and prayerfully for God to lead the way. And we want to invite you to join us in that mission. The world can swing in whatever direction it wants to. And our promise is that the word of God will be our anchor. And so let me end with exactly that. The wisdom of God as our anchor from his word in Hebrews. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's bow in prayer. God, we want to push aside all the opinions of of mankind, all the sways of culture, all the truths that are pushed and, and lifted high and even praised in darkness. And we want to pray that your light would shine over all that and your word would just be central to everything. 
We want to see the world through your eyes. We want to understand your laws and, 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 and not only understand in our minds, but to savor in our hearts sweetly how it is perfect and good. We want to pursue and, and hunger after knowing your heart more than we want to make more money or to be more educated or to get our dream job or to get our dream spouse or friends or to get the car or the house or the clothing that we want. We want to be right in you more than we want to just be right according to what is, is, is popular. And again, we ask for humility I know very well that myself and all of us, the church, can be wrong about things, just as the church was in American history over slavery. We don't want to repeat the mistakes of our forefathers, but want to humble ourselves before you and desperately ask that your word would bring light to our feet and that we would never take a step forward if it is without it. Father, I pray for this summer as we go through Romans, both in Sunday services and in midweek. I pray that each one of your children would know you more in all the intimacy of that word, true knowing in our minds, in our hearts, and our souls, and that we would walk with you. Lead us, lead this church. Lead every precious child of yours. And we pray that your word would dwell in us richly. In all of this, we seek not to push our agendas or fight against anybody else's. We do this not so that we can have a loud voice or to be in place of privilege or power. In fact, we want to do the complete opposite. We want to be like Jesus, who although had all power, humbled himself to the state of a servant and loved. So give us your character and your likeness. And let all of it be to give you the highest, highest praise. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.